You are listening to the History of Religions and Their Gods, ghosted by the Skeptical Ghost Heathen. Do you believe in gods? Welcome to the History of Religions and Their Gods podcast a study of the birth of Christianity from its earliest beginnings in history during the Messianic Age in the 2nd century BCE. Take a journey with me through time as we examine the most historical events in Jewish history that would evolve into the world's largest religious cults with some 2 billion members. If you came here to learn about the good, the bad, and especially the ugly, well then I promise you that you came to the right place. Because from the infancy of this movement, if it was anything, it wasn't pretty. Hello, heathens, and welcome back to the show. Today is August 21st, 2022. And first of all, happy birthday, baby. I love you. That's my wife, Erin's birthday today. But I hope you guys are all doing well out there, wherever you are. And God damn it, whoever you are, I really don't care. But if you're still listening to this show, it's episode five of season five, and we're on part three, where we are taking a look at the Gospel of Mark. Now, you guys know me. I'm obsessed with Mark. But why am I spending so much time on Mark? Because although the others are very interesting, they are just build-ons, add-ons to the myth. I don't think they understood exactly what Mark was trying to do. But Mark is the shortest and most direct to the original messianic message. And it's that original message that is of importance to me. What was he trying to tell his readers? What was he trying to tell his hearers? What was he trying to... What message was he trying to convey at the time this book was in circulation? And when exactly was this book in circulation? Well, that is exactly what I intend to demonstrate in this series of episodes. Because it is my belief, as well as many others, that the Gospel according to Mark was written shortly after the Jewish Wars by Josephus. Josephus' accounts of the wars, which was in circulation by the year 75 CE. I intend to prove that Mark was a documentary or a commentary on the Jewish wars of 66 to 70, but through a Christian perspective. Now in this gospel, we can see that this author employs the art of myth-making, creating parallels to the war while using different characters, a different place and time with different outcomes. But these differences in the myth in relationship to reality, that is what the message is all about. So let's take a look at it deeper and see what we can find out.
Now we need to discuss people and empires in this episode, and the people who played an active role during the war in Judea in the service of the Roman Empire, and who at the time Mark's Gospel was being composed, assumed the title Emperor, Lord, and or King. Now we need to look at Vespasian, Titus, and Herod Agrippa too, as they seem to be the best candidates. While Vespasian and Titus assumed the titles Emperor and Lord, Herod Agrippa served as the puppet king of the Romans in Judea. Each other played a very active and key role in and during the war, serving the interest of the Roman Empire. In this episode, I want to talk about each one's role in relationship to the war and the Roman Empire. We'll start first with Vespasian. He was a low-born Roman general. He was born into the plebeian class of the Roman society, the Roman working class ranking below the patrician class of Roman nobility. By when? On Mark, page 154. In the year 66 of the Common Era, he was appointed by Emperor Nero to stop the Jewish revolt. His campaign in Galilee was very destructive, and many Jews lost their lives there, while others were either sent into slavery or displaced. Jewish Wars three. 539 to 541. While he was still on the battlefield, standing on Jewish soil, there Vespasian was proclaimed emperor. Josephus, as well as other ancient writers, claimed that Vespasian's rise to this position was, in fact, the fulfillment of a Jewish prophecy that was expecting a world ruler to come from Judea. Jewish Wars 6, 312 to 313. So Vespasian's rise to the imperial throne is also cited to several things, including his military success, some omens, and his ability to work miracles. Now, I'm not sure who came first, whether it was Jesus or Vespasian, but Vespasian's ability to perform miracles is evident in the restoration of sight of a blind man and, of course, the healing of a man's withered hand as well. While Vespasian used spit to heal the blind man, he restored the man's withered hand by stepping on it. His power to heal was granted to him by the god Serapis. This is reported to us by Tacitus in Histories 481, as well as Suetonius on Lives of the Caesars, Vespasian 720. Also, since he originated from a lower class, and the people thought it was impossible for someone from that class to rise to position like emperor, it has been argued that Vespasian used these omens and prophecies and supernatural powers as propaganda, as tools in order to legitimize his imperial power. Now, when Vespasian became emperor, he confiscated the land in Judea from the Jews, as well as imposed a poll tax among those same Jews. Josephus shows us that after the year 70 CE, Vespasian owned a shit ton of land in Judea. Elsewhere, Josephus relates that, in quotation, Caesar Vespasian sent instructions to Bassus and Liberus Maximus, the procurator, to farm out all of the Jewish territory, end quote. Although he never founded any city in his own name, he did reserve the country as if it were his private property, to do so as he wished. He did assign land for nearly 800 army veterans who served underneath him. And this land was actually called Emmaus, Jewish Wars 7216 to 217, 
So it's evident from this account that Vespasian leased part of the land while he gave other parts to his veterans. Vespasian also gave some land away to his friends as gifts, as well as to Josephus, as seen in The Life of Josephus Flavius, page 425. Now with respect to taxes, Vespasian imposed a poll tax that was to be paid annually by every Jew living in Judea. And Josephus confirms this. On all Jews, wheresoever resident, he imposed a poll tax of two drachmas to be paid annually into the capital as formally contributed by them to the temple and to Jerusalem. Jewish Wars 7 to 18. But in addition to this poll tax, it's seemingly that Vespasian also imposed a property tax in Judea as well. Now, with respect to Domitian, Domitian who became the emperor after his brother's death, Titus, Josephus says, he also exempted my, Josephus, property in Judea from taxation, as seen in Life of Josephus in 429. Now this statement, especially the word also, demonstrates that Domitian did what Titus and Vespasian had previously done for Josephus. Based on this assumption, we can conclude that Vespasian collected property taxes from all the Jews in Judea. And Vespasian's role as general in the war, and also the emperor, represents the value of Roman Empire that serves as the backdrop for Jesus' teachings about the value of God's empire in Mark's Gospel. Now Titus was Vespasian's first son. The second son was Domitian. He also had a daughter, Domitia. Now, he was born in the year 39 CE, and he would rule Rome as emperor between 79 and 81. And during the war, Titus fought hand in hand with his father to crush the Jewish revolt in Judea. And during the Galilean campaign, he was prominent in the siege of Chotapata, Jaffa, Terachia, and Gamala. As seen in Jewish Wars 3, 142, all the way through 411. He also led the attack upon the conquest of the rebel leader, John Kishkala. We talked about John and Simon in many episodes before the two rebel leaders. Now when Vespasian left for Rome to officially occupy the imperial throne to take a desk job, Titus then became the chief commander of the Roman armies in Judea and ultimately led the siege on Jerusalem that climaxed the fall of the holy city and its temple in the year 70. Now seen in Jewish Wars 6, 354-55, as well as 7, 1-4. Now in order to ensure that the Jews, including many of Paul's congregants, would not attempt any more revolts, Titus left in Jerusalem the 10th Legion, along with some cavalry and companies of infantry. Jewish Wars 7, in June of 71, Titus celebrated a joint triumph along with his father in Rome, and there he serves as deputy emperor. Now because of this, there's no surprise that Josephus frequently referred to him as Caesar or Imperator and even Lord. After his death in 81 CE, he was deified as a god. Titus's military campaign in Jerusalem was nothing less than catastrophic to the Jewish people. 
so many women, children, and elderly died among the assault. And Titus wanted to punish the Jewish captives so bad that he crucified them on crosses. Or he would make them fight wild beasts. Can you imagine that? He ordered the crucifixions of so many Jewish captives that it was difficult to find the space or the crosses. And it was also difficult finding enough nails or even the wood to make the crosses. Now, this is what Josephus says about it. And I think you'll understand why this author for Mark chose his Jesus to die by crucifixion. And then the quote begins like this. They were accordingly scourged and subjected to torture of every description before being killed and then crucified opposite the walls. Titus, indeed, commiserated their fate, 500 or sometimes more, being captured daily. Titus's main reason for not stopping the crucifixions was that he hoped that the spectacle might perhaps persuade the Jews to surrender, for the fear that the continued resistance would involve them in a similar fate. The Roman soldiers, out of range, and hatred amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures on the crosses. And so great was their number that space could not be found for crosses, nor crosses for the Jews. Jewish Wars 5, 449-451 So it's pretty obvious. When the author for Mark either witnessed this, or heard about it, or read about it in the Jewish Wars, his Jesus, his literary sacrificial lamb, had to die in Jerusalem this way, along with the rebel leader, Barabbas. Because the Jews chose war over peace. So I think it's pretty evident from this passage in Wars of the Jews that Titus's motive, his primary motivation for crucifying such a huge number of Jews was to, in fact, terrorize the shit out of them. Enough so that every other Jew would be forced to surrender. Josephus also mentions about games with wild beasts as another form of torment or torture that he also implemented on the Jewish prisoners. And first he reports that Titus presented multitudes of captives to various provinces to be destroyed in outdoor theaters by sword or wild beasts. Jewish Wars 6, 418. Then he relates that these prisoners died in violent celebratory games, either with wild beasts or another, in Caesarea Philippe, Caesarea Maritima, Baritas, and also Syrian cities that Titus visited after his conquest of Judea. Jewish Wars 7, 23-24, 37-39, and 96. Titus also sent prisoners into slavery while keeping some for himself, for his triumphant entrance when returning back into Rome. And in other places, Josephus shows that Titus authorized a selection of, in quotation, the tallest and most handsome youths among the prisoners to be reserved for his triumph in Rome, and those that were above 17 years old would, would just be sent into slavery in Egypt. Jewish War 6, 417. Then Josephus adds that at Caesarea Maritima, he ordered that the rebel leader, Simon Bargioris, remember, and his partner, John Gashkala, Simon Bargioris 
also was to be kept for his triumph in Rome that was soon to be celebrated. Jewish Wars 736. And then in other cases, Titus punished the Jewish prisoners by cutting off their hands, both to distinguish them from the citizens who submitted to the Romans and to force the other Jews to surrender. So they were chopping off hands and were performing crucifixions. I'm surprised that um, Pontius Pilate didn't chop off Jesus' hand too. Now Josephus writes that Titus gave orders to cut off the hands of several prisoners so that they might not be mistaken for the deserters and that their calamity might add credit to their statement. Jewish Wars 4, 455. So all of these dealings with the prisoners of war were expensive because of Titus's tyrannical behavior and brutality. Now let's make an interesting observation here that I just kind of pointed out about the hands being cut off by Titus, right? And this is happening in Jerusalem. This is happening by the synagogue, happening by the temple, perhaps even in the temple, right? After Titus has already demolished the city and he has captured the prisoners. Now, cutting off the hands. Now, we already know about the crucifixions. Jesus was going to die by crucifixion in Jerusalem because that's what Vespasian and Titus were doing to the Jewish prisoners. But can we find anything in Mark that might relate to the hand? So let's look at Mark 3, chapters 1 through 6. I'm going to read it out loud. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with his shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, Stretch out your hands. He stretched it out, and in his hand it was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So what is the lesson here? What is the takeaway that this author from Mark wants to mean by this? We already get it. We get the crucifixions, the mass crucifixions. Jesus was going to die that way in Jerusalem anyway. But the, bee, but, but the cutting off of the hands, how does that play into it? Mark 3 says right from the beginning, verse 1, that the choice of good or evil, that would be one, following the peaceful movement, or the, um, which is symbolic by Christ, or by the way of evil, which is symbolic of John Gascala, or Simon Bar-Giorus. The rebel leaders of the Sakari movement, right? So by choosing the path of the Sakari, of John and Simon's movement, or evil, the evil generation of Jews that revolted against Rome, those were the people that were going to have their hands cut off. Those were the people that were going to be hung on crosses by some 500 per day 
until there wasn't enough nails, wasn't enough area, wasn't enough room, then wasn't enough, wasn't enough wood. By choosing the way of peace, even if it was on the day of the Sabbath, the holiest day in Jewish tradition, when spells weren't supposed to be happening and, and miracles weren't supposed to be performed, it didn't matter. The choice of good, of following good, the choice of following peace was always the answer. He heals the man's hand no matter what day of the week it was. Now, our guy Titus here, he wasn't only tyrannical and brutal. Well, he was also super extravagant too. He would display a, a lavish lifestyle and behavior in every single city that he would visit after his successful victory over the Jews. In fact, at Caesarea Philippi, he evidently conducted all sorts of spectacles. And at Caesarea, a city that rested on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, in quotation he says, what Josephus says, he celebrated his brother's birthday with great splendor. And then at Berytus, current day Beirut, Titus displayed still greater magnificence on the occasion of his father's birthday, both in the coastlines of the spectacles and in the ingenuity of other various items of expenditure as well. Jewish War 739. And, and this sort of thing continued with many more very expensive spectacles, also in Syrian cities as well. Also in Zugma, on the Euphrates, where he provided a banquet to the delegates of Bolognese, which is the king of Parthia, who received him there, Jewish Wars 7, chapters 100 through 106. It is this extravagant behavior, this, this expensiveness, of how Titus used his wealth in order to maintain his status as well as honor. Now, Titus's wealth is also expressed in terms of his land ownership there in Judea. Josephus tells us that Titus reserved land for the Roman garrison that was quartered there, and that he gave a gift of land to him as well. Josephus tells us in Life of Josephus Flavius 422, now, the fact that Josephus says specifically that Titus gave him land and reserved some also for his troops, more than likely, the legion, as seen in Jewish War 7-5, is pretty strong evidence that Titus owned land in Judea. He, he either confiscated it after the conquest of Jerusalem or inherited it from his father Vespasian. Now, Titus, perhaps like his father, farmed out the land to others. Also, there is sufficient evidence that when he became emperor, he began to collect property taxes from Judeans. Josephus, Josephus' comment that he was exempted from having to pay taxes for his property in Judea strongly suggests that the taxes farmed out to all the Jews as well, because he was exempt from it. Life of Josephus 429. Meaning, well, Josephus was living the tax-exempt lifestyle, others had to pay it. Now let's talk about the next guy, and a major key player in this saga of Marks. Herod Agrippa II. Well, he was the son, obviously, of Herod Agrippa I, and king of Judea through the entire period of the Jewish-Roman War. And he became king in the year 48 CE following the death of Herod, king of Chalcis, 
Now at first, Emperor Claudius appointed him to rule Chalcis, as seen in Jewish Wars 2, 223. Although he began as a ruler of a smaller kingdom, he was later assigned a much larger kingdom that, en that encompassed what was previously under Herod Philip, which was Trachonitus, Bariana, and Gualiantus, and the kingdom of Lysania and the old Tetarchi of Varus. I probably messed some of those names up, but Jewish Wars 2, 247. And during the time of Nero, Herod Agrippa II's kingdom expanded to include Abila, Julius, and Paria, as well as Tarachia, and Tiberius in Galilee. Jewish Wars 2, 252. And we'll get down to making a point about all these different cities. Also, Gamala near the Sea of Galilee and opposite Tiberius also became part of his empire as well. Jewish Wars 3, 56. Now, in relation to the war, Herod Agrippa II was 100% pro-Roman. Josephus expresses the king's pro-Roman attitude in numerous ways. For example, shortly before the war ignited, when the populace was protesting against Florus's abuses, such as plunder of funds from the temple's treasury, his tyranny that often included public crucifixions, and his overall corrupt behavior, Jewish Wars 2, 293-308, Agrippa II treated the Jews extremely harsh as well as repressive. Now, he may have been truly outraged at some of Florus's brutality, from what we get from what Josephus says, but he says in quotation, but diplomatically turned his resentment upon the Jews who at the heart he pitied, wishing to humiliate their pride to divert them from revenge. As seen in Jewish Wars 2, 337. Although the chief priests, the leading citizens, and the council, he says, in quotation, being men of position and as owners of property, of desirous of peace, understood the benevolent intentions of the king's reprimand. Jewish Wars 2, 336 and 338. The ordinary people, however, pressed for appeal to Nero. Jewish Wars 2, 342. For his part in the saga, the king, Herod Agrippa II, well, he maintained that the Jews should keep their loyalty to Caesar, and Caesar alone. In a long speech that he gave, he stated that he intended to avoid the war with Rome, so he urged the Jews to pay their taxes and the tributes to the Caesar. And then Josephus narrates, in parentheses, or in quotation, You have not paid your tribute to the Caesar. Pay your taxes! Jewish Wars 2, 404. Although the debts of the tribute amounting to 40 talents was collected, not all agreed with the king. The people, in quotation, heaped abuse upon the king and formally proclaimed his banishment from the city. Jewish Wars 2, 405, all the way through 407. So this incident was immediately followed by the abandonment of the sacrifices for Caesar. Then shortly after that, Eleazar Benananius, who was basically the captain of the temple at the time. He worked to persuade those who served in the temple to not accept any sacrifices from any foreigners anymore. 
basically any non-Jew. This act laid the foundation for the war with the Romans. Jewish Wars 4, I'm sorry, 2409, 2403, and 414. Now, King Agrippa II, he expressed his pro-Roman attitude all through the war, from start to finish. And during the revolt in Jerusalem, he even provided the authorities with an additional 2,000 troops in order to suppress the revolutionaries. Jewish Wars 2, 421. Even at the outbreak of the war, he not only supplied Cestius, who was the governor of Syria, with additional troops that fought against the Jews in Alexandria, but he also personally accompanied him in order to guard and provide for the interest of the army. Jewish Wars 2-500 and 2-503. Now, by the time Vespasian arrived to stop the revolt, King Agrippa II and his troops received the Roman general at Antioch, Syria. He gave Vespasian 2,000 bowmen, along with another 1,000 cavalry. And at Caesarea Philippe, he entertained Vespasian with some lavish feast. You can imagine it in your head, right? Now, according to Josephus, King Agrippa II entertained the general and all of his troops with all the wealth of his royal household. Jewish Wars 3-443. Are you sensing some Game of Thrones here? I am. And during Titus's military campaign in Gamala, the king was also there with his troops to help support the Romans fight the Jewish rebels. He also received 30,400 war prisoners from Teriachia that Vespasian handed over to him. But they were to be sold into slavery, according to Josephus, in Jewish Wars 3, 541. So what, what does this all mean? Agrippa's role in the war demonstrates how Jewish leaders were supportive, or at least submissive, of the Roman occupation and oppression in Judea. This may help explain Mark's negative attitude towards the high temple priest and the Jewish leaders, as well as Agrippa as spoken through his Jesus character. Now, Mark, in reality, is referring to Agrippa too. But in his gospel, remember he's backdating 40 years, as talking about Agrippa I, his father. like to transition into the criterion for people and empires that fits within Mark's documentary on the war. It demonstrates the values of the Roman Empire that is exemplified in Vespasian's and Titus's behavior, as well as their actions. The two commanders used their military power not only to dominate others, but to also acquire the whole world and wealth in the form of land for themselves. They also both enjoyed the violent torture of crucifixion to leave bodies on display for others to see, just to terrorize people, to show how much power they had over them. Kind of like the Louis, right? During the French Revolution and the daily guillotine executions where some 10,000 people literally lost their heads. Well, I imagine it's something like that. 
Also, they both lorded over others by imposing taxes on them or by enslaving them. Then they would display their wealth and magnificence with lavish feasts and parties while they starved others. Now, this should all sound very familiar to you if you're up on your mark, the author of the documentary on the war, because this author makes his Jesus very concerned about this particular situation too. Mark's Jesus teaches the true values of God's empire, such as carrying the cross, losing and saving life, gaining the whole world as seen in chapter 8, 34 through 38. Also, being a slave and a servant for all, and definitely, definitely, do not lord over others. 10, 42 to 45, as well as 9, 35. Mark's readers would have known exactly what he was talking about in these particular chapters and verses in his book. Anyone who lived during this time would have made the connection that Jesus is condemning Vespasian and his son, Titus. Both Gentiles and Jews are receiving a lesson on what should be considered as good values. Just like what Virgil does to Homer. Mark even makes a reference to paying the taxes to the emperor in 1214. So if you were a Jew that was still alive in Judea and read this, you would quickly recall the memories of the cessation of temple sacrifices by Gentiles on behalf of the Caesar, by the revolutionaries and the high priest, Eleazar, a.k.a. Lazarus. Now, it was this specific event that ignited the war with Rome. Mark's use of the phrase for his Jesus was a reminder that peace was always a better option. And unfortunately, the majority of the Jews of this time chose death. Bringing death onto themselves, they chose to go to war with the devil. Now, just like you see in the Passion narrative, where the Jews in the crowd encouraged by the Jewish elite, the Sanhedrin, to choose Barabbas over Jesus. They literally chose war and rebellion over the righteous path of peace, represented by Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Genius, I tell you, genius. And then, as a puppet king for the Romans, playing the part of the tax collector, King Herod Agrippa II not only served in the interest of the Roman Empire, but he also imitated the Roman values. The same thing that we just talked about with Vespasian and Titus, because he wanted that too. The values of Vespasian and Titus and their murderous, overlording, lavish lifestyle of oppression. This guy, a Jewish elite, mind you, fought and killed his very own people in order to protect his own position of power. He, too, wanted the lavish lifestyle of the Romans. The imperial palaces, the statues. Now, he wanted the status and the honor as well. Mark's reference to Herod in chapter 6, verses 17 to 29 
for example, clearly demonstrates that message. Of course, although Mark means Agrippa II, who reigned in the 60s and the 70s, he's employing the use of his father Agrippa I, who reigned during the time of Jesus in the 30s. Mark backdated everything 40 years to symbolize the Jewish wandering in the desert, of course. The temple goes down in 70. The crucifixion has to happen 40 years back in 30. The reason why we have the variation and the conflict in the Gospels, for instance, some suggest it was 33 AD, 33 AD, excuse me, is because the final and last efforts were actually in the year 73, when the complete annihilation of the Sakari cult was ended. Now let's go ahead and read this passage starting from verse 25. For Herod himself had given orders to have John the Baptist arrested and have him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Sir Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted him dead. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? She replied, the head of John the Baptist. At once, the girl hurried into the king's room with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and in front of his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with the orders to bring back John's head. The executioner went, and beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter as ordered. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it inside the tomb. And that ends the quote. Now, by the way, Mark's readers or those hearing his documentary in the war would absolutely recall the memories about Herod Agrippa II and his involvement in the war. Mark's readers would have viewed Herod Agrippa II as a negative example in comparison to Jesus' teaching about not using power and an unlimited authority in the ways that he did. So let's take a look at some verbal parallels that help us link the Jewish words to Mark's commentary. So the criterion of verbal parallels concerns the events in the war that Mark also depicts in his gospel about Jesus. The verbal parallels that Mark makes in relation to the war in those events include the military terms of expression that are evident in the story about the demonic of Gerasene. 
Remember, we talked about that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, as well as the feeding story in chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Now, in this fabulous story about the demonic of Gerasene, the author for Mark employs many military terms that were used at the time. But as you're aware, the most intriguing one was the term legion. Remember, the legion of demons inside the man's head. This term is actually very expressive of Roman military forces, and such a term as this would have reminded Mark's communities of the Romans' 5th, 10th, as well as 15th, as well as the 12th legions and other forces that Josephus mentions in Jewish wars. Chapter 3, verses 65 to 69 and 541. These forces had just destroyed their fellow citizens that had plundered their property and put their nation under further continual Roman domination. But when Mark uses it, it would also remind them about the presence of the 10th legion in Jerusalem, along with some squadrons of cavalry, as well as some companies of infantry that Titus left behind there after his conquest of the city and its temple. Jewish Wars 7-5. So when Mark combines the story about Jesus removing the legion from the demoniac man's head that enters into a nearby herd of swine, which is another derogatory term used for the Jews who had revolted, then runs wildly like beasts into the sea and drowns. His readers and or hearers would understand that this one man, in Matthew there are two, was the leader of the rebellion, the Jewish rebellion, and most likely referring to Simon, Simon Bargioris. And in Matthew, we get two, Simon Bargioris and John Gascala. Now, the reference to legion would remind the reader that it was the legion that was present in the temple with Titus when both John and Simon emerged from the catacombs and ultimately surrendered. And then as Mark wants to complete this picture and the image for his reader's imagination, the military term that he uses in his feeding of many found in chapter 6 verses 30 through 44 relates to the arrangements of people and groups. Mark shows that the people who were fed by Jesus were ordered to sit in companies, group by group. Chapter 6, verse 39 through 40. Now, why would Jesus use a common military term? Sitting in companies, group by group, is a military expression linking Mark's story about Jesus to the war. Mark's audience would think about what they saw during the occupation of the war, after the trashing of Jerusalem and the tearing down and the burning of the temple, seeing all the Roman troops sitting in this exact formation during their times of rest and eating after the onslaught and the slaughter. Mark is reminding his readers about the harsh Roman occupation and the destruction that the Jewish rebellion brought onto themselves. But not only the violence, but also the times of rest. One could say that Jesus was in fact playing the role of Vespasian in this scene. But how he should have acted.
Now we're going to talk about events and the criterion that involves imperial entrances and the march into Jerusalem. Now in the first event, it compares Mark's portrayal of Jesus' holy entrance into the city. Keeping in mind that in reality, when Mark is writing, the city's already been leveled to the ground and the temple burnt to the ground. But anyway, it's in chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. And then in reality, in Vespasian's case, his entrances into cities and his establishment of imperial rule upon the people of Judea. Now, in regards to imperial entrances... Mark opens his gospel by indicating that the advent of Jesus was formally announced in order to let people prepare for his coming, for his grand arrival. Mark, as God's messenger, proclaimed this, in quotation, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Chapter 1, verse 3. Now the Lord here, Mark, of course, is referring to his Jesus in the story, who John the Baptist identifies as the one who is more powerful. Chapter 1, verse 7. Then the kairos, meaning the right, critical, or opportune moment of the coming was ready. In quotation, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Chapter 1, verse 9. And then shortly after that, Jesus is inaugurated in his campaign of salvation in Galilee, which he termed the good news of God, which was concerning the arrival of God's empire that was to come for those who wanted it. Chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Now this is all really important. Lock this in. Go back and re-listen to it if you need to. So in Mark's mind, this good news was inseparable from the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as seen in the opening chapter 1, verse 1. Now, Mark's reference to the preparation and making the Lord's way to be straight is also associated with the leveling of the roads for easy passage by the Roman armies and their garrisons. Now, for example, before Vespasian entered into Jotapata to crush the Jewish rebels there, he first sent ahead a body of infantry, as well as a cavalry, to level the roads leading up to it. Because a stony mountain track could be extremely difficult for mountain troops, chariots, and pulled wagons. It took them four days to complete the road and make clear passage for the king and his army. As seen in Jewish Wars 3, pages 141 to 142. Now, I think Mark's readers and hearers would easily pick up on this parallel when he says, Prepare the way for the Lord, as seen in chapter 1, verse 3. Reporting about Vespasian's colorful entrances into cities was also well known among Jews and Gentiles. They would have understood the parallel. Josephus says that Vespasian was received and hailed in divine terms at every single city that he entered. Upon his arrival at Tiberias, Vespasian was hailed as, in quotation, Savior and Benefactor. Jewish Wars 3, page 459. Pretty much in alignment with Mark's Lord and Savior, I might add. Now, moreover, after the announcement and the proclamation of Vespasian becoming the Grand Emperor, residents of cities received this news about the new emperor as the Good News. 
just like Mark. And now he proclaims his Jesus as the Messiah, as the good news. In fact, people in every city in the East celebrated the good news and offered sacrifices on his behalf. Jewish Wars, chapter 4, page 618. Also, the governors of Alexandria, Moesia, Pannonia, and Beretus, including the legions and the people under their authority, all pledged allegiance to the new emperor, Vespasian. The Savior, the way and the light. Jewish Wars, chapter 4, page 619, as well as page 621. In Rome, the people were very excited and were waiting for his arrival with heartfelt joy and satisfaction and were also paying respect to him in their hearts as if he had already come, mistaking in their keen desire, their expectation of him for his actual arrival. Josephus quotes in Jewish Wars, chapter 7, pages 63 and 64. Now the people, the Senate and the army, were all confident that Vespasian alone would bring them salvation. Literally in quotation, bring them salvation, security, and prosperity. Jewish Wars 7, pages 66 and 67. So when Vespasian arrived in Rome, they all hailed him as their benefactor and their savior and the only one worthy to be the emperor of Rome. Jewish Wars Chapter 7, page 71. Vespasian was the light and the way. The only way to achieve true salvation. Unlike the Jews who chose to turn away from his greatness. His offering of salvation and eternal life. You get to live, right? Would hopelessly die a horrible death that they obviously brought on to themselves. Guys, this is Mark's entire message in a nutshell. Had they chosen to follow Paul's Jesus, Christ Jesus, in the 50s, the path of righteousness, the path of peace, forgiveness, and pacifism, millions of Jews would still be alive. The holy city would still be standing. Mark simply wanted to quell Paul's congregations from straying away from his Christ Jesus and rebelling against the Romans. It was a horrible decision to make, but this is what many Jews were hoping and expecting would happen. So, when Mark's readers read about Jesus' grand entrance, the good news, his status as the Son of God, and the announcement of God's empire, well, of course they're going to link these events to the war about Vespasian and his military victories, and his establishment of imperial rule, all of which celebrated as the good news and his divine status. Now lastly, there's the whole Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey trope, right? Chapter 11, verse 1 through 11. And their reference to the temple being turned into a den of robbers instead of being a house for international prayer. Chapter 11, verse 17. Because these also link Mark's commentary to the war. Because Jesus' triumphant entrance is making the connection to Menachem's 
and Simon Bargiorsis' messianic claims to their respective triumphant entrances into Jerusalem, as well as to the triumph in Rome that marked Vespasian's enthronement and Titus's ultimate victory against the Jews. Jewish Wars, chapter 7, pages 70 through 71, as well as page 122, all the way through 162. Now, the status of the temple being called a den of robbers instead of a house of international prayer for the nations, it reflects the Sakari in the zealots' occupation of the temple and making it an armory for their tyranny. And when the rebel leaders, including the temple captain Eleazar ben Ananias, decided to start refusing tributes and sacrifices from the Gentiles that was also to go to Rome, well, this was an act of treason. This was an act of war with Rome. And, quite frankly, a slap in the face to the Lord and Savior, Vespasian. Therefore, Jesus' grand entrance into Jerusalem was a reminder to the Jews and Mark's audience about the Messianic pretenders, the false prophets that would come in Jesus' name who were extremely active in recruiting Jews to fight in the war. All right, everybody, I think that's a wrap. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this particular episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope that you're finding these parallels between Mark's documentary, our commentary on the wars of 66 to 70 CE, to Josephus' Wars of the Jews. It's quite interesting and it's very intriguing. Um, but ultimately, understanding why he's doing it. Understanding who his audience is. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Paul's congregations. Paul was concerned. We see this in his letters. Paul was concerned about his congregations leaving to some of these other new prophets. Who were those other prophets? They were prophets that were coming to take these congregants away to fight in a war, convincing them to fight or to follow this other Yeshua, right? That was what Mark was worried about because of the ultimate damage upon millions of people, Jews and Romans alike, and the collateral damage, the city and the holy temple. Catastrophic. But Mark also knows, or he knew, it wasn't over yet. We even see this in chapter 13 of his documentary on the war where he talks about rumors of nations against nations, rumors of war. Well, of course, because three years later, it happened again with the final revolt in Mazda under the rebel leader Judah. So, obviously, Mark had this to contend with. Matthew coming in, continued it on, and that's why I believe that John is probably writing in that 117, 115 to 117 during the Keto Wars. And then the wars continued. There's another one in the in 135, I believe, um, under um, Simon, uh, I'm sorry, um, 
Oh, I'm forgetting his name. But um, anyway, it'll come to me and I'll bring it up in the next one. Barcoba. There, Simon Bar... Barcoba. 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 <laughs> anyway, hey, and one more piece of fantastic news I think you guys might enjoy is that I am going to be a guest on a podcast called The Repodcast. Now, it's out of Europe. I believe um, she's in um, she's in London, England. And, it, and I'll send you the link. I'll actually drop it on here and I'll put it on my other social media links. But um, I got about an hour. Um, and I'm going to talk about, obviously, the historicity of Jesus. But I'm going to talk about the Messianic promise. Um, we're going to talk about Second Temple Judaism and the, um, the, 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 the Hellenic age, the Greek influences, and ultimately, why do we even have a Jesus? We're going to talk about the, um, the initial point of the Messianic age, all the way up to the fall of the temple, and then the continued push for Jesus. So I got an hour to do it. And um, again, I'll share the link when I get it, and I think it'll be very exciting. But you can probably start looking for her now. It's the re the R E podcast, the re podcast UK, I believe is what it is. But again, I'll share the link on the next episode. But I start recording it um, tomorrow. Talk to you guys later. Ciao.